uh, before we get started, um, just something on my heart. I, in the last like 24 hours, there's been some emotional, an emotional funeral that I was a part of, baptism here, prayer and anointing over a friend whose mom just got entered into the ICU with COVID, and it's just, it's overwhelming, and it makes me sit back and just go, the power of God is either at work and real and matters, or it doesn't. Either what we're talking about here is real and life-changing or it's not. And I'm more convinced now more than ever that this is the power of God at work. Through his word, through his people, what we get to talk about today. And so transitioning in a little bit here, I can honestly tell you I've never had more to work with in a passage than I do with this message it was like I had a thousand pieces to like a hundred piece puzzle. That's what it felt like. I, I so much came up and I honestly uh, got a little ridiculous at first. And, and uh, one of the thoughts that I had was, well, forget what I'm supposed to preach on next week. Let's just double it up and, and take Acts 19. That's where we're going to be. There's so much going on, so much to talk about. Let's just take that and take two weeks to cover it. But no, that wasn't a great idea. So I said something I know you'd all love is let's just extend service times, however long is needed. Let's just extend this. Your laughter tells me that was a good decision not doing that. And then I came up with the most ridiculous idea of all, like, uh, you, you remember maybe you don't, like there were these choose your own adventure books that you could like, if you want the adventure to go this way, turn to that. And I was going to have one of you like flip a coin and depending on heads or tails, I was going to preach this message or that message and prepare two different, it was ridiculous. I am glad <laughs> that through prayer and through listening, God has kind of distilled all of this down. I just hope I can keep it under two hours. <laughs> Today, and next week, we're going to be setting the stage for this series that we're starting in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be diving in. I said we're going to be in Acts 19, and that might be weird. I thought we were starting a series on Ephesians. We are. Each of the next two weeks, we're going to be painting the picture. What was life in Ephesus like? Before we dive into the letter, what, what was the life of the Christians? What was going on in the community around them? As one commentator put it, Ephesians, the letter Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus may well be the most influential document ever written. The most influential document ever written. The way that this letter directs the Christian thought life, the way this letter presents the sheer awesomeness of the gospel, and the way it specifically directs believers in our lives, Ephesians is powerful for the believer. For the heart that is open to a fresh movement of God, Ephesians is like a bombshell. <laughs> it's going to be powerful. So like a lot of the New Testament epistles or letters of the New Testament, you can read through the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, in like 10 minutes. It's six chapters. And in fact, I would really encourage you to do that every week of this nine-week series. Take the time, maybe grab your phone right now, put a reminder, read Ephesians once a week, it takes 10 minutes, but, but maybe part of a fresh movement of how God's going to move in your life in this series, in this time that we're going through this, may be just devoting some time to read the letter of Ephesians over and over and over and see what God does. Ephesians has been called the letter for today, which I think is very fitting concern, considering the, the title of today's sermon, which is, We Are at War. <laughs> It's an incredibly relevant letter for our lives and our culture today. 
Because for all that we strive to pursue for enjoyment and satisfaction, it seems like we're farther than ever in actually attaining that. And the church, the people of the church are supposed to have answers to the questions, to the missing puzzle pieces, to the foundations that are necessary. Do we? Is that who we are? Are our lives different than non-believers around us? What are our foundations and where is our message? Who do we think we are? That, you saw that's the title of this whole series. Who do we think we are? And that's what Ephesians is going to help us answer. So in light of all that, and certainly all that we're going to cover in the next eight weeks um, of this nine-week series, this week and eight weeks more, um, I've got a warning. I've got a caution for you right here at the beginning of this letter in this series. Here it is. Easy believism, passive, non-engaged faith can't survive this letter. This church, the church, the people of God, reading and interacting with God's instructions and the awesomeness of his gospel, we need to be responsive and responsible to what God says to us. We need to take this and not evaluate whether it'll change us. We need to allow God to move through us. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be a church that says, however God tells me to move, I'll move. However Jesus tells me to live, I'll live. I hope so. I'm ready for that. Let's get to work. Today, uh, today's passage, Acts 19, shows us that faith in Ephesus was a faith lived at war. Ephesus was a dark place. Ephesus was a very spiritually dark place. It was obsessed. The people, the daily lives of the people in Ephesus were obsessed with magic and the occult and the worship of Artemis. It was the home center for the temple of Artemis. Artemis is uh, the Roman goddess equivalent to Artemis is Diana. She was the goddess of fertility. And the temple of Artemis, I think we have a picture of it, in such a rich port city, the temple of Artemis was so extravagantly built and so decorated that it became known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And while you can certainly go into some fascinating research on this, uh, go home and Googling it and finding some more information about the temple of Artemis, I'd encourage some, some caution if you're doing that because well, how else do you depict the goddess of fertility? How else do you think you practice worship in her temple? Yeah, frenzied sexuality was rampant. And that's just part of what I was saying when I was saying Acts 19 paints a particularly dark and di disturbing battleground in Ephesus. And just with today's account, just with this single season and this single chapter, we'll have a demon beating down the seven sons of Sceva, just kind of a creepy title in and of itself, right? Seven sons of Sceva. We'll have a frenzied riot where most people involved have no idea what they're doing. And then we'll top it all off with some worship of the sex goddess and something about a sacred stone. <laughs> Even Marvel can't beat God's real life productions here. And seriously, if Acts 19 were a realistic movie, if the scenes that we're going to talk about just in this one passage of the Bible were portrayed realistically in a movie, 
There's no way it'd be any less restrictive than like PG-13. I wouldn't let my kids watch these scenes. And yet amidst all of this stands a God who is a primary figure speaking whatever language will reach these people. And in their crazed, obsessed culture with power and the supernatural, he moves in ways that show them where true power really comes from. Here we go. Acts 19, let's pick up verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. (laughs) Wow. To catch the impact of what's going on, just, just look at the power of the name of Jesus here. People throughout the whole city becoming believers and they repented of their sins. And part of that for them was bringing their old magic books, the magic books that they had used and practiced and obsessed over and they brought them to be burnt. Do you see where the obsession in that culture lies with magic? 50,000 pieces of silver, sound like a lot? Yeah, that's the modern equivalent of $6 million worth of magic books, burnt repented of, tossed away. Hold on to that thought. And they're in a culture that obsesses over power and the supernatural. The movement of God proves undefeated against demons and the healing of sick, even just with Paul's laundry, apparently. I wonder whose idea it was, by the way, in the first place to even try that. Like Paul takes a handkerchief, blows his nose, throws it on the ground. Someone's like, I wonder. If I pick that up, what's going to happen? Anyway, as I said before, this kind of surreal movement of God is happening because God is speaking the language of Ephesus. God speaks the language of the people to reach the people in order to show himself and the message of Paul and the people of the way. That's the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus called the way because it was after his Statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God speaks the language of the people to show that he is the culmination, the end, the fulfillment of all that they're seeking in power. You want to see power? You want to see real power? 
I can talk like that. I can show you the end of that fulfillment. And as for this demon, oh, just with one statement, it's just creepy. It's like this otherworldly voice, like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, like, Jesus, I know. I'm horrible at it, apparently. <laughs> Paul, I recognize. But who are you? It's creepy. It's chilling. And it's, it's like a reverse exorcism, the demons driving out the false exorcists. And the world of Ephesus, I think, experienced this more clearly than most of us do in our culture. But hear me very clearly when I say this. There 100% are demonic, supernatural forces at work in our world. This isn't just something that happened in the past or during certain times or this isn't fiction. There are demonic, supernatural forces that are not to be messed with. But they're limited. They're limited. Demons and Satan himself, they're created beings. They're not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present like God. You even saw with this demon, he what? Deferred to a power greater than him, right? So I'm telling you that there are demonic powers at work, but it doesn't mean we need to be overcome in fear of them. We just need to not underestimate them. Otherwise, we're going to end up like these seven brothers of Sceva getting more than we bargained for. And on that underestimating something, getting more than we bargained for, I can kind of relate to that. And I bet many of you, especially if you've been through like college courses, I bet you can relate to this. Uh, do you remember the moment of shock, the moment of terror that hit you the first day of a college course when you reviewed the syllabus? <laughs> Anybody with me there? It's called syllabus shock. <laughs> There's a term for it. It's called syllabus shock that, that you sit there on the first day of a course and you're covering all the mountains of work that you're going to do in the semester, all, all the writing projects, all the reading, all the group work. Ugh, hate that. All the cohorts, the lab works, just staring at this mountain of coursework that was going to take place. It's just overwhelming. I think when I, was, when I was first in college, it actually resulted in me dropping a couple of classes right off the bat. Like I sat there in the first day and we covered the syllabus and I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm out of here. That's too much. That's, that's more than I bargained for. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I got a reminder of what that felt like. I started uh, diving into some Greek language studies, and I was, at first, I was so excited because you get to learn a new alphabet, and you get to start to recognize some words, some vocab words, especially seeing the name of Jesus written in the same characters the disciples would have seen it. So cool. And then, boom, it hit me. I started working on dynamics of parts of speech and the 24 different words in Greek there are for the word the. <laughs> and I, syllabus shock, just got terrifying. Why am I talking about all this? Oh yeah, scary, underestimating <laughs> experience, getting more than you bargained for. At least I wasn't beaten down and stripped naked alongside my brothers. <laughs> the beating and the humiliation of these brothers was from the supernatural power of the demon. But, but how did that result in the name of Jesus being glorified. Okay, the demon beats up these seven brothers, and what happens is everybody praises Jesus. What's the connection there? Well, remember that the demon, as powerful as he was, he deferred to Jesus publicly. He recognized, I know Jesus. I've heard of Paul. 
Why did the seven sons of Sceva, the itinerant Jewish exorcists, why did they start using the name of Jesus at all? They didn't believe in him. They started using it because it had proven successful over sickness and over casting out demons. And they go, yeah, sounds good. Let's use that. And the demon goes, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. The demon world has been made well aware of the power that's coming against us. We know that power. We defer to that power. But who are you? God is moving in this unique kind of crazy way because he's speaking the language of the people. He's speaking their language. He's moving in a way that reaches them. He always does this. One final note here before we move on in our passage. Pay special attention to this warning of the seven sons of Sceva. And some of you are going, okay, I don't know that I walk around trying to do exorcisms all the time, but okay. Take very serious the insidiousness of taking the name of Jesus, the powerful, eternal, timeless name of Jesus, and using it for our own purposes. God told us long ago in the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't use it in an empty sense. And this does not just mean avoid attaching a curse word to it, or avoid saying it next time you hit your finger with a hammer. This means... Don't bring the name of Jesus into your purposes and your agendas. People want to bring the name of Jesus like a flag, a standard, and slap it onto whatever causes we have to give it more power, more legitimacy. That's what the seven sons of Sceva tried. This is done with politics. It's done with social issues. And it's more commonly done when we flippantly tack on, God is telling me to, to what we want to do to convince other people that we're in the right, that we're justified. Now, listen, there are things that God calls us to do. There are causes that God clearly gives us to care about like he cares about them. But please, please don't name drop the authority of Jesus. God Almighty, the authority, the great high priest, just because you want your cause to progress. And this really stuck with me, and it's kind of like a, its own sermon on its own. But a name, a title, president, boss, pastor, holy of holies, lord of hosts, they only have authority with them as long as the person filling that role continues to fill that role, okay? If I cease to be someone's boss, I cease to have the authority that comes with that title, But Jesus will never cease to be the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. He's always going to fill that title. He's always going to bring fulfillment and power and authority behind his name. The name of Jesus, the name of Jesus for the causes that he intends is undefeated. And more than that, it's undefeatable, can't be beat. But when people like the seven sons of Sceva or people employing the name of Jesus for our agendas, when we try to use just the name, not an integrity of belief, 
but just the name of God for our causes, it's going to be empty of power. Not because the name is empty, but because that's not God's cause. We're trying to just bring the name of God to our cause. It's empty of the power that we intend, and it may even backfire like it did for these brothers. So if you're going to call on the name of God for a cause, you're going to want to be right. Because if the seven sons of Sceva incident has showed us anything, it's that God will defend his name. (laughs) He won't be used. So apparently Paul and his laundry have had a significant impact in the two and a half years he's been at Ephesus. As Acts 19 describes here, even the demon world recognizes that. And ahead of the passage we just read, in verse 10, it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And then at verse 20, at the end of the passage we just read, it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Do you see how the work of the church and the ministry of the word is moving powerfully in this time in Ephesus? The people in the culture of Ephesus were undergoing a significant change. And as we're about to see, it started to impact their local economy. Because of this influence of the people of the way, clearly we've already seen that the magic book industry has taken a major hit. (laughs) We've already seen that. And and now, as we're about to see, people have stopped or at least reconsidered or reevaluated Artemis worship. The way that they would do this is they would go to that temple of Artemis and, and available, like sprawling throughout this place, available were these temple trinkets, little miniature figurines of the goddess Artemis that you would buy as a sign of worship to Artemis and also as a sign to kind of bringing that blessing of fertility or sexual pleasure or agricultural gain to yourself. Apparently, you could also use it as a curse for someone else. It worked both ways kind of strangely. But instead, over these last couple of years that Paul and the people of the way have been in Ephesus, that economy has taken a big hit. People have started reassessing what their values are in Ephesus. As we're about to see, people have begun to shift what they want to spend their money on. Man, what if we could have an impact on our community like that? That over just the course of a couple of years, we start to see, man, people are reassessing their values. What they want to spend their money on is different because there's this group called the followers of Jesus, and they're making an impact. And all that, this this mixture of politics and cultural regionalism and, and, and worship leads to this. Verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, that's those trinkets we were just talking about, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This silversmith, Demetrius, he's, he's apparently a very passionate worshiper of Artemis, or at least as long as that worship is filling his pockets. And he calls together other men, other craftsmen, who are also pretty passionate about their pockets. And he started welling everybody up with a mixture of anger and pride. Religion mixed with politics, rich with, mixed with finances. He says, these guys are attacking our livelihood. They're attacking our business. They're messing with the reputation of the great and worthy Artemis of the Ephesians. They're even saying that gods made with hands like ours are not gods. <laughs> not the sharpest tool in the shed, this Demetrius, but he's effective. And the mob grows. So much so that the only place that will hold such a mob is the theater right at the heart of the city of Ephesus. Capacity 20,000. Probably had sweet acoustics too. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. People are chanting. They're rioting. They're, they're fumed up and most don't even know why. Sound familiar? People are just worked into a frenzy. And if you ask them what they're so upset about, they don't know. Do you see why Ephesians is a letter for today? And the chant echoes 20,000 people strong. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. And I'm sorry, but great is Artemis? You want a God that can be best served by buying little figurines? <laughs> you want a God that can be robbed? <laughs> Acts chapter 19, verse 35. And when the town clerk, that's like the mayor, had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no 
cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Why is he so afraid of being charged with rioting? Rome. Rome rules with strict force over its provinces like Ephesus. Rome had a zero-tolerance policy for rioting. So the town clerk, a voice that will finally shut the people up, steps up in the middle of the chanting crowd and he goes, these followers of the way that you have brought here haven't been destructive or taken anything at all. But as for right now, what you're doing is illegal and destructive. Calm down. Go home. But there's something a little controversial, something that really stuck with me in in not a great way about what the town clerk just said. I kind of struggled here a little bit with this passage. He said, these people are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. They're not? Isn't showing people how gods made with hands are not gods and confronting false idols exactly the sort of impact Paul and the people of the church of Ephesus is trying to have there? And first I tried to kind of settle this by going, well, that's not necessarily an instruction on how we should go about confronting false gods and what we want people to say about us. It's just an example of what Paul and the people of the way chose to do. But then I realized something. These are the words from the town clerk, from his perspective. Paul himself tried to get out in the middle of this crowd and correct things with his own words. But his friends and the Asiarchs, they're they're the keepers of the Roman imperial cult in these different provinces. They also, by the way, were called his friends. What does that tell you about Paul's relationship with the people here? They wouldn't let him. They wouldn't let him go into the theater. Kind of sweet moment here amidst all this chaos. And clearly, we have to stop and go, is the church in Ephesus having an impact? This town clerk just got up and said, they are not speaking against our goddess. Okay, let's take that, set it over here for a second. Is the church in Ephesus having an impact in Ephesus? Oh, remember the magic book bonfire after the seven sons of Sceva? Remember what we read earlier, the people of the way causing no little disturbance? Remember Demetrius saying that, man, people in like all of Asia have been turned away because of Paul and these people. And remember that their impact has resulted in less and less and less temple trinkets. Clearly they're having an impact. But here's the key. They're doing it in such a way It isn't viewed from the other side as destructive. All that can be said about them is that they're impacting their local economy and culture. And the Ephesians, the town clerk, the Esiarchs, eventually this whole entire crowd had to finally go, they're not against us. No case can be made to justify this commotion. This models that we may do well to still offer a counterculture, but in such a way that isn't destructive. I want to dive into that a little further. What are we known for? As people of the church, and not just Timberline, followers of Jesus, Christians, what are we 
known for. Too often, I think we, and I'm definitely including myself in this, I think we fall in line with like the rest of the flow of the world and we most aggressively make clear what we're against. That's called bridge burning, not bridge building. And we're going, wait, but, but some things aren't okay. They've got to know that some things are wrong. Totally agree with you. But apparently in Ephesus, Paul and the people of the way felt the exact same way. And yet they impacted their culture with a different kind of reputation. Live counterculturally, right in the midst of the people, but do it in such a way that they can't have a case against you. All they can conclude is that you're impacting people's lives. That won't hold up in court. All they can conclude is that they are seeing real power at work. The kind of power that Jesus talked about in Matthew 28. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them sharing the message like we did today that I am a follower of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That same power, that same power that the demons recognized, that same power that the mob in Ephesus recognized, That same power that the Roman centurion at the cross recognized, even that the Egyptians in the midst of the Red Sea recognized, although a little bit too late for them. (laughs) That same power is still at work, is still mightily at work. Wouldn't it be cool one day, (laughs) I had this thought, wouldn't it be cool to have your name substituted for Paul's name in either of these two stories one day? Think about that. Seven Sons of Sceva incident and the riot in the theater and all that kind of stuff. And instead of Paul, insert your name. I mean, seriously, demons going, Jesus I know. John Mel, I've heard of him. (laughs) But who are you? (laughs) Wouldn't that be so cool? (laughs) Our local officials saying, oh, John, Timberline Church, you can try to make a case against them, but all we can say is that they're impacting people. Their, their influence has resulted in less pornographic study, uh, sales and, and less business for divorce lawyers. Won't hold up in court. This is how we can impact people's lives in a countercultural way, as Pastor Jeff talked about a couple of weeks back here at TW clearly offering different viewpoints, different values, but doing so in such a way, with such a tone, with such a posture that it can't be viewed as destructive. That's really tricky. Is that you? Is that how you carry yourself when you're offering a counterculture? I don't want you to water down what Paul and the people of the church are doing here. Don't view it as like a minor impact. They are absolutely taking out demon strongholds in Ephesus. They are absolutely confronting false idols and knocking them down. 
This is a battle here. This is a war here, what's going on in Ephesus. Don't water that down. But they're doing so in kingdom ways. You can't fight fire by bringing more fire. You can't beat back darkness with more darkness. You want to fight in this battle, this war that we're in, you've got to fight the way Jesus does. You've got to fight with the weapons that he gives us, as we're going to learn about in chapter 6 in a few weeks. But I strongly encourage you to check it out. That's the weaponry we're supposed to use in this war, the armor of God. Briefly, I want to mention this last point uh, before I get to a couple of invitations. This is something we've talked about a couple of times over the last few weeks. Um, certainly goes back to our sermon series in, on Daniel called Exile. Thrive even in the midst of war. Thrive. For Paul and the church in Ephesus, they weren't just surviving in Ephesus. They were thriving. They were killing it. The secret to the success of the counterculture that they were bringing in Ephesus is more and more and more of Jesus. Looking more and more like him. Talking more and more like him. Fighting in the war more and more like him. I talked to a buddy after last service and we were just saying how, yeah, that's a point of never arriving. Does, does all my talk, do all my actions look like Jesus? And if not, lean more and more and more into that and watch what God does through your impact. Look to him, talk like him, act like him, fight in a war like him. So who do we think we are? Two invitations here. First is a prayer, an invitation to a prayer. God, change us, not just them. Like Paul in the church in Ephesus, the key here is to look more and more and more like Jesus. And unless you've arrived at that, which you haven't, I haven't, God, change me. Let me fight, let me talk, let me act, let me posture myself more and more like you. Because you can't control other people. Okay, you can just more and more lean into who Jesus is and let God change other people. You want to see people change in your life, just lean more into who Jesus is and watch what happens. Church, are you ready for that? Are we ready for a movement of God that we'd be, all of us, individually and then collectively, we'd all be responsive and responsible to what God's doing in us? That's the first prayer. God, change us, not just them. The second invitation is this. People of the way want you to be us. The gospel, the good news about Jesus comes with the invitation that, that people that follow him, in, in Ephesus it was called people of the way. Nowadays you'll recognize it as people of the church. We deeply, passionately wants you to belong because we've seen the goodness of God. We've seen the power of God at work and the salvation of God at work and we can't experience that and not want to share it with others. That's why we want you to be us. Not in a clique, not even in a religion. In family, 
and in following Jesus in salvation, all based around him. Like Paul in the church of Ephesus, we will do whatever it takes to gear up in the midst of a war to reach you and show you the way. And if there's a knockdown of idols, whether religious or cultural, when that happens as a part of that pursuit, it's because they're false. They're misleading. They won't satisfy. They won't deliver. We want to introduce you to the only God that can. Make no mistake, the battle of the war is real. Both sides are coming after each of us, and both sides play for keeps. We invite you to trust in the powerful, undefeated name and salvation of Jesus. He is pursuing you in a way that he'll speak whatever language it takes to reach you. Perfect. Under two hours. (laughs) Let's pray together. (laughs) Almighty God, I start with that first invitation, that first question. Would you change me? Would you change us? Oh yeah, God, we can look out at our world, our community, our culture, and and look at all that is wrong out there, but, and you do care, and you do call us to care. But we need to be people that say, God, would you change me first? Would you help me engage that culture, those people, my neighbors, my people in my own home, in a way that looks more and more like you and less and less like me? God, would you give me words to say, postures to take, tones, that when a counterculture, when a different worldview is presented, it's not viewed as destructive by people on the other side. It's just followers of the way caring about other people and wanting to show them the way. God, would we be a church, would we be a people that would authentically and vulnerably be responsible and responsive to you changing us and then allowing that impact to move over to the culture? Secondly, God, I pray that anybody hearing this, if they don't know you, as Savior, as Lord, as their God, but they're hearing about this powerful, awesome, all-powerful God that also knows us intimately and cares about us and accepts us right as we are because of what you did on the cross in giving us forgiveness for our sins and in the resurrection, offering us a new kind of life, defeating death, giving us hope for the rest of this life and for all of eternity. God, if that's where someone's at, they walked in here or listening to this, watching online and and were far from you, would they just pray this? Jesus, I hear about what a great God you are and I want to lean into that more. I want to know you more. I want to accept the forgiveness and the grace that you've clearly extended to me. God, I pray that there would be people that are awakened, hearts that are awakened, dry bones that are stirred to life because your spirit is at work. And finally, God, it is so easy for us to end our prayers in Jesus' name 
would we take a moment and recognize that there is, the reason we do that is there is power. There is boldness that we can have, that we must have when we align with you and go along the lines of what you call us to do. We can boldly say, Jesus, if you want to change me, if you want to transform and reach this world, do it in Jesus' name. And we can know that we are fighting battles that are yours. You're not going to win every battle we want you to win, but you will win every battle that you choose, God. You are undefeated, you are powerful, and we love you and we worship you for that. In your name, amen.